Most investments carry risk, but there's one that is all upside. The only risk-free investment is an investment in yourself. The Globe and Mail is the largest business newsroom in Canada, interpreting and unpacking macroeconomics, housing, policy decisions, and world events. Enjoy a comprehensive suite of business newsletters, breaking news, and market updates straight to your inbox. As a subscriber to the Globe and Mail, you'll get access to investor tools like advanced charting, portfolio with the Wellscope report card, providing independent six-factor review of your portfolio, and stock screener to help you find the right investments. The Globe and Mail is offering a special digital subscription rate just for Looney Hour listeners. For a limited time, get access for $75 a year for your first year. For more details, visit globeandmail.com slash podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 73. As always, you're joined by the three amigos, barely. Uh, we got Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting and Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management. Keith's at the airport right now. Uh, he has to leave us in about half an hour, so short segment for Keith. He's jumping on a plane to Frankfurt. And Rich, I don't even know where the hell you are these days. Um, I'm I'm in France, um, where we are committed to the Looney Hour and providing content to everyone, no matter what time or day or hour or country. Um, yeah, I'm on yet another ski vacation because why not YOLO, as they say. And I had to skip out on a fondue dinner to come and chat with you guys and the rest of our listeners. So that's, um, that's but, dedication right there. It sounds like you dedication. got uh, you got another bout of COVID after your sixth booster there. What's going on? Uh, I've had uh, 10 boosters. And yes, indeed, I have. Um, I've had a bit of bout of COVID, but really, I've just been skiing all day. So that's why my nose is red and my throat's scratchy, but it's been good here. But, but anyway, Keith's the one we got to we got to get we got to pick Keith's brain and what's going on in, in Toronto and what's going on with JT and the rest of the world. <laughs> Yeah, Keith, Keith we're gonna have to <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to maximize your boomer wisdom. By the way, guys, we do have a fine on this show, uh, hundred dollars for any time a mic has been forgotten. So Keith is uh, without his without his mic, so he's got the Apple AirPods in. So if the quality stinks, you know who to direct your uh, anger towards. Yeah, it's a bit of a one percent problem. But Rich, what, what's going on with the romance there in in like France, the country a lot? Um, no, not much, not much. Um, apparently they're in love with meat and cheese over here. So I've been eating too much of that, but it's been a beautiful sunny day. Just been hanging out and, uh, haven't met anybody on the slopes this time. So we'll, we'll keeping it clean. Jeez. What a okay, disappointment. Let's, um, let's go. So we had, we had bank earnings. We had bank earnings over the last couple of days. Yeah. That's, that's one thing. What else do we have lined up? Yeah, we got uh we got the Canadian housing. We got some Canadian housing data for the month of February in Vancouver and Toronto, you got your bank earnings. You've got uh, flat zero, big, big, uh, big donut on the board for Canada's uh, fourth quarter GDP, uh, and then hotter than hotter than expected inflation in the eurozone, which uh, Keith, I'm sure you flagged as well. So uh, we'll get into all that uh, in this uh, episode here. But you know, to start things off, looking at the GTA, uh, home sales down 51 percent year over year, uh, second lowest in 20 years. 
um, number of homes that were listed for sale down 42%, the lowest level in 20 years. Uh, very, very similar story where I am here in Vancouver. We had sales down about 47%. You know, it muddled along. If you look at it from a historical basis, you know, weren't as bad as 2019 or 2013. So, but overall, pretty, pretty weak month for sales here in, in Vancouver. The big sort of shocker, which has been, you know, we've been chatting about on the show now for several months is new listings uh, in this market came in at a 26 year low, 26 year low for new listings in the month of February. So again, I don't know, you know, we've all been trying to predict the housing market. There's certainly a lot of commentators on the YouTube show and on Twitter. And I don't think anybody, as far as I can recall, had 26 year lows, um, you know, on their bingo sheet there. So it's uh, it's interesting. It's really really weird. And obviously, hey, hard to have hard to have sales, hard to have turnover if you have nothing to sell. So that's what's going on with mortgage. Rate. Oh, sorry. What's going on with mortgage? Um, which mortgage rates in in Canada? How have they moved? Yeah, they're starting to creep up. I mean, we're, I mean, I watched the Canada five year bond. I mean, it may as well be my homepage now. Um, the Canada five year bonds ticked up to about think back up to about three. 0.7 today um or two points yeah anyways it's uh yeah still it's, it's in, back so it's still inverted I mean, we still live in that inversion world yeah, yeah we we're it ticked up into just over three six and a half three seven so you're getting back to the to the highs that we saw uh at the end of 2022 so in terms of your five-year fixed rate mortgages the, those are creeping back up you'll see some more hikes probably in the next couple of weeks from some of these big banks. So, you know, the, the optimism around 4% mortgages uh, was very short lived. And, and I think, you know, heading into the spring market here, mortgage rates are going to be back up on the climb. Keith. Well, I'm sensing the optimism up over here as well. But one, one thing, uh, one thing that's pretty cool where I am, it looks like I'm a, like a weather person, doesn't it? On the YouTube channel. <laughs> Point this yeah, way. There's, there's ice cap coming just to drop me he's off. He's got a glass of wine, vacation Keith. Let's go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Um, you know, I think though it, it, you know, everything here is all connected. Oh, by the way, this is like a live loony hour event. There's about 200 people here in the Montreal, uh, Air Canada Maple Leaf Lounge. Is that right, Rich? Is that what you'd call yeah. it? Tell us about the Wi Fi in the Maple Leaf Lounge and how another oligopoly is shafting Canadians. <laughs> yeah, right now, everyone is listening to, you know, Boomer here. Um, but let's jump over to the to the banks because you know, we, we, we had, you know, the mortgage data just came out. Uh, Rich, then you can jump into the, the GDP data. Everything sure. is tied together. But yeah, it's like, you know, we had the Canadian banks come up the last three days. And, uh, you know, the headline numbers were, were okay. Everyone, they always beat, of course, that's what they do. Um, but the big number everyone is looking at, like nobody cares about capital markets and trading, you know, they can make that for what it is. But the loan loss provisioning, uh, everyone ramped it up higher again, because they had to, of course. They are still at levels of what they were provisioning for the last decade before the pandemic hit. And obviously they've written more loans since then, of course. So they're, they're still in trouble of, you know, being, significantly exposed to this hard landing that we may or may not get. We we believe we're still going to get it. We think the probability of it happening is still quite high. And, uh, you know, so during the week, some of the bank stocks had some, they weren't great days, especially, you know, RBC. I think they were trading down 
three to five percent yesterday, I think, on under earnings data. And today's Thursday, by the way. So then you were talking about Wednesday. That's a bingo card, right? <laughs> There's another one. Maybe. Indeed. It's maybe. And uh, so what was kind of funny this week on, on Twitter, I even suggested that Canadian banks might, you know, if they ever cut their dividend, you know, God forbid, you know, Canada would just roll it over. And uh, it, it's just interesting that even people who are pessimistic about the economy and the way things are moving, like they were even attacking the statement. You, know, you can never say anything ill towards the Canadian banks. So, uh, but, you know, the, just to summarize with, with the bank's earnings, this is moving like they're nervous. They're they're wrapping up the provisioning. They're trying to be as positive as possible as they can with everything else on under earnings that come out. But if we roll over, you know, you're going to see some, you know, some pretty big credit headaches coming up for those guys. Couple couple notes on that. Um, yeah, Scotia I think had one of the the big I guess misses. Um, certainly, a company that you know I can tell you anecdotally um, was pretty heavy on the residential investment side um you know we had a lot of uh yeah they they were there they definitely catered to that market and, and certainly um you know if you think about investors that buy real estate you know a lot of them will tend to float their debt on variable rate mortgages so i think uh you can certainly see that in in the price movement of that stock uh there at scotia bank and and you know the ceo basically came out and said listen we're gonna have to ramp down sort of mortgage originations and try to focus on on growing our uh, deposit growth. So I found that kind of interesting. There's always been a lot of uh, shakeup and turnover there at Scotia. Um, I think they mentioned that they had like, I think if you look at Scotia's residential book, about 36%, I believe, 36% of their book is, is variable rate mortgages. Um, so they got certainly a lot of exposure. Um, you know, that's, so that's interesting. But, you know, uh, and then they have the emerging, but they have the emerging markets land as well. They, they can get hit with a you know, double whammy. Oh, by the way, Rich, I was thinking of you about 20 minutes ago. Do you know why? Because I was late to the podcast <laughs> recording. <laughs> no, I was, I was at the salad bar here. And guess what? Oh, very good. I made no friends, zero friends. At yeah, salad well, you bar. don't make friends at salad, as thankfully our loyal YouTube commentators have uh, have hopefully educated you in the ways. And, uh, oh, however, uh, Keith, there for a second. Yeah, yeah. However, a good friend, Steve M, out in uh, Vancouver, he pointed out to me that you actually you don't win friends with salad. Oh my goodness, that's yeah, right. That's that's tough, Rich. That, that's tough. Wow. So, uh, just <laughs> touching on the uh, <laughs> touching on the wrapping up the Canadian bank side. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I found it was kind of like an interesting tidbit that was circulating there on the uh, the Twitter spheres. But uh, TD, so just going through some of these these the bank earnings here, looking at some of the numbers, it was noted that TD and CIBC uh, have just over twenty five percent of the residential mortgage book with amortizations greater than 35 years. Uh, so last year, that number was essentially zero. And so now 25% of their mortgages um, have amortizations greater than 35 years. So essentially what that's telling you is these people that were on these static variable fixed payment mortgages, um, basically their amortization, which may have originally been, say, a 30-year AM, 
uh, is essentially being pushed out to 35, 40. I mean, we've seen some that are 45 year amortizations, right? Because basically no principal is being paid off on these mortgages. So that reminds me of the European um, European crisis. I mean, there are several, but the one between 2012 and 2016, at the time I was working for a company and I was working as a sort of the number two for the European investment strategy. And a term was coined, which I think is apt um, for the Canadian mortgage marketing, which is extend and pretend, or is it pretend and extend? I can't remember which way which way it is, but it's amazing. And what they did at the time was um, a lot of the Greek debt that was you know ten year bonds or twenty year bonds or whatever. It was the maturity was basically pushed out. I mean, I want to say to infinity, but that's just being mean. It was pushed out to thirty and forty years, basically. Those so the same notional value was owed, except you would just the duration of that bond was effectively pushed out further and further and further out. And it's it's sort of a sim, similar type of things happening in the Canadian housing market, as you've so eloquently put, pointed out, which is you know instead of having a twenty five year loan or a thirty year loan, what they do in in the U.S., you've got thirty five and forty and. <laughs> My goodness, we'll probably hit fifty eventually. I mean, it it just tells you that you know somebody somewhere is going to have to take a write down, um, or or, or just Canadians are going to be at hawk in hawk to these banks for a very very long time, and their disposable income and the you know maybe the the price or the value of these assets is, is going to have to come down. So you know somewhere someone's going to pay. Um, and it's just, we're, I guess we've discussed this before now, it's just a negotiation sort of who, who who's going to, who's going to feel it, but extend and pretend. <laughs> Did I get that right, Keith? Extend and, and you're, pretend. You know, yeah, you're pretty good. It's extend and pretend, but you're, you're, I'm surprised because you're, you're usually, you're very accurate with your numbers and in your data, Rich, <laughs> but you're, you're a little off with this one, but the, the European crisis is sort of about a thousand BC <laughs> and it'll continue until 3000 BC. So you don't know why. A wide berth you got going on there. Yeah, Keith, do you have any further comments on that? Because I, I don't, I, I, yeah, I've got some some commentary on 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 just some anecdotal stories as well. On, on Canadian or European? Just on the on the mortgage side there. Uh no, nothing more than just I. I really think it, it's at the maximum point of pain right now until something breaks. Do you know what I mean? So it, again, like rates, overnight rates are not going to go any higher. Uh, you know, the, the yield curve, even though the long end has, has risen, you know, a bit over the last couple of weeks. And, and the banks love that, by the way, because, you know, richer net interest margins you like to follow, they prefer a steep curve, especially on the front end. Um, but if, if we do break coming up, then it'll get worse. But if we continue to plot along now, I, I think they'll work out well, which is not our base case, by the way. Yeah, I'm just noticing, like, anecdotally, like a lot of the conversations I have, um, it's basically people aren't really doing anything with their fixed payment variables. Like they're like these people that now have, you know, 40, 45, whatever amortizations, everyone's just kind of just like sort of sucking it up. They're paying like the, the, you know, the new increases, but they're not like a lot. I think a lot of people aren't actually like restructuring the debt. They're not like a lot, not in bulk anyways, like converting to fixed mortgages or, you know, accelerating payments to pay off their mortgage faster and get principal pay down. Like it seems to be kind of just like, okay, let's just leave it. It is what it is. Hope that rates go back down, you know, sometime next year. And, and people are more or less just kind of, you know, just leaving. I had a call uh, from a guy this week, actually. And it was just interesting, you know, he had a, 
he had a mortgage with TD. So he had a variable mortgage with TD. And he says, you know, I'm thinking about potentially selling my home. You know, what do you think? And, uh, you know, he, he bought the house kind of near the peak so that he wasn't really able to sell it without incurring a loss. He goes, well, I don't really want to incur a loss, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's kind of just like breaking even cash flowing a little bit because my, my, my variable rate mortgage has not increased. The payment has not gone up. And I said, Oh, that's interesting. You know, most of the times you're seeing the payments are at least going up a little bit. And he goes, no, what they're doing is because I had this loan to value, right? He had a, he had a 70% loan to value when he initially entered into the contract with the bank. And so what they're doing is they're basically doing like a negative amortization. They're essentially adding to the balance of the pay of, of the mortgage. So he says, you know, every, every month they add on, you know, seven or $800 a month to the balance of the mortgage. And so they'll continue to do that until they hit basically an 80% loan to value threshold, at which point TD says, okay, uh-uh, you're done. We now need to con- convert you to, you know, a fixed mortgage, or you gotta, you gotta restructure this somehow. Um, so I found that very, very fascinating because it, it, to Rich's point, it is kind of like, you know, extend and pretend basically. And, and so I, I suppose that could work so long as rates come down meaningfully or the housing market bounces back in, in a year or two or. Well, I, mean, I, that... I don't think, oh, well, well, I'll go first, Rich. Um, Overnight rates are not coming down for a while, guys. Everyone might think they're going to rate, you know, they, they're going to stop and then start cutting them in a few months. It, the only way that would happen if domestically we have a challenge and the rest of the world doesn't, if everyone's having a challenge, they'll need to save a dollar. It's like it's one thing to save the housing market or the, you know, the, the, the bond market, but they, they have to protect the dollar as well. So I think we're headed for a, Again, if we fall off from here, it, it's going to be a, a tough one. What do you think, Rich? Well, no, that, I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to say, which is that, that that strategy, I think, only works if you think that interest rates are going to come off shortly. Um, I think eventually, I mean, people will I mean, people will wise up to the fact that they're now paying an incredible amount of interest um, and a very little bit of, of capital. Um, and I, and I, like I said, that only sort of, as I agree with you, Keith, that I, you know, I'm more aggressive. I'm a little bit more hawkish on the, on like what will happen to the overnight rate. I think we still see, see, see some hikes before the end of this, before the end of the summer, surely, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, but you're right. I mean, the only way that that sort of works, that strategy. Wait, wait, wait. Works. Did you say surely? <laughs> Even with a horrible Wi-Fi, you make still make terrible dad jokes. So good for you. Your, your kids must be very proud. <laughs> He's consistent, at least. Yeah, that's right. Um, should we get into the GDP numbers at least a little bit? Just to, yeah. To... Well, I mean, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with like you know, kind of a weird housing market, uh, and and certainly you know the future direction of interest rates. Uh, we've had stickier than expected inflation, but uh, the worse than expected GDP print. Rich, maybe uh, walk us through that. Yeah, sure. So basically, the real gross domestic product was nearly unchanged in the fourth quarter. Um, and you know, if you look at the final domestic demand, which is expenditures of consumption, gross fixed capital formation or investment, um, that was up basically very slightly at 0.3 for the fourth quarter. Um, so that's the first, you know, flat after five consecutive quarters of increase, that's like the first sort of quarter of either no decline, either decline or no increase. Um, and, and it's just, it just, it just shows, it just speaks to more weakness. I think the really, you know, we've discussed this uh, before, which is 
housing investment is going to be a significant drag. And again, and why is that so? It's because we had, you know, gross to fixed capital formation can be broken up into different parts, non-residential, which is, you know, equipment and structures and intellectual property and research and development, et cetera. And then there's the residential bit. And we discussed, you know, I think maybe this time last year that residential spending as a percent of GDP was up in the eight, nine, 10% range, which is the number we saw in um, when you when you looked at Ireland's housing bubble or Spanish Spain's housing bubble and the US housing bubble. And now we're and what we argued was, as that number starts to drop off, which is the, the residential gross fixed capital formation starts to come off just because that's sort of inevitability of higher rates and etc, that it's going to be a real, real big drag on GDP. And lo and behold, that's sort of what we're seeing. So housing investment fell 2.3% on the in the fourth quarter, which is the third consecutive quarterly decrease. If it sounds like I'm reading this is because I am. Um, and, you know, and of course, this was new construction, renovations, and then something called ownership transfer costs, which is equivalent to sort of a goodwill number, but for residential. Ownership investment. transfer costs is essentially like realtor commissions. Yeah. So it's like sort of a goodwill. It's, it, it's, it's kind of a fudge. It's like sort of the, I don't want to say added value, but it's sort of that sort of margin. And that's just collapsing. But however you slice it, I mean, you're just getting a huge, huge drag from um, from housing investment. On the positive note, business investment, non-residential, which is the uh, sort of other part, rose. Um, and so did household spending. Um, but what's, again, I just, just to wrap this little, you know, segment up, which is to say, you know, remember how many people are coming to Canada each quarter and GDP was flat. <laughs> so what we're seeing is now that we're starting to see the real GDP per capita is really starting to, if this isn't, I can't remember, I'll have to go and check the chart and I'll share it in the Looney Hour substack. But if this is not the, I think this is at least the first, if not second quarter now that you have a decline in per capita GDP growth, which is not, it's not a good sign. Keith, Steve? what do you think? I mean, you know, we, we saw the, the Q4 numbers come out and they're, they're pretty weakish. That's where we're going. The, the January number looked, looked okay. But that's because the December number was revised lower. So, um, you know, that's, this is where we're going. Like we always talk about the path where we're headed and um, path where we're headed. It continues to look like we're headed for an economic slowdown. Inflation's going to remain sticky. Is that a rich, deep three, four percent? Who knows right now? I don't think it'll go much lower, truthfully. And uh, at the same time, we could have, you know, the, the high inequities rolled off in, in January. Now we're starting to go lower again. So it, it, I continue to suspect we're going to get this really great opportunity, you know, to, to put risk on. So for people who were you know, holding their own last year, that, that's, that's awesome. And uh, we're seeing the same thing so far this year for us and in our portfolios, like January and February, look positive, you know, we just like watching paint dry and it keeps looking good after it dries. And uh, so we're going that way. But, you know, again, everyone, we have to be concerned that the economy does roll over because the mess when you get job losses and that's Keith, where we're not yet. What I'm most curious, I want your feedback on is, it was interesting because, you know, you had this zero flat reading for Q4 GDP and uh, the BOC, the Bank of Canada there had forecasted in their monetary policy report most recently that they had Q4 GDP coming in at 1.3%. So they forecasted 1.3 and it came in at zero. 
I'm kind of curious your thoughts on maybe how they might interpret that. Um, obviously, they've got an inflation mandate, but certainly that's a huge disappointment. I mean, I, I don't know if they'd be happy because they, they obviously need to slow the economy, but that's a, that's a pretty big miss. Well, I think that's quite obvious that they expect the number will get revised higher in, in their minds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but again, like I think now they're very concerned that they hike rates so aggressively, so quickly. And that's the way it works with monetary policy. You don't know the effect until two, three quarters afterwards on what's, what's going to happen. But again, we, we, we keep going back to this is not a Canadian problem. It's the same, the Europeans, the same problem, the Americans. You know, the EM countries in South America and, and Asia. Like, for example, the South Korean PMI number this morning, I think, Rich, like it just. Industrial production. It was industrial, industrial production, production, but. Yeah. You know, again, like you're seeing just little hints that things are not getting better. You know, they're, they're rolling over if you're looking for it. So maybe, yes. maybe we're looking in the wrong, the wrong weeds, but, you know, it, this, this looks like, it, I, I think in hindsight, you know, history is going to be unkind to the central bankers, which is rarely happens, right, Rich? But uh, yep. I think it's going to show that, you know, they were, you know, obviously they missed everything in, in 2020 and then they got too aggressive and they kept going too late. But remember, the key here is, is it's not the Canadians or the Koreans or the Europeans or like that. It's the Americans. What are they going to do? And the, the Americans continue to suggest they're going to stay hawkish for, for longer and, and higher. And, and that's the key thing. That's just going to suck capital out of the world, suck it out of Vancouver, suck it out of Lyon over in France, and even here in beautiful, dreary Montreal. So, Keith? You've got um, the Fed revising, or you know, the markets, I should say, are now expecting the Fed funds rate to move higher than the Fed is actually predicting. I think the market's now pricing in what three more hikes from the from the Fed. So I think in five. Oh, yeah, that's right. Seventy-five. Five and a half. Five and a half. Yes. No. Up another seventy-five. Yeah. No. Up another. Up another seventy-five. So again, let's just say hypothetically. Let's just say that happens. Um, I guess how how weak do you can we potentially prepare or plan for to see the Canadian dollar? I mean. Clearly, the BOC's kind of stuck. Um, you know, they're trying to weigh the, the the Canadian housing market and the highly levered consumer here, private sector, and then you've got the Fed, which is just going to power through. I mean, they're certainly in better shape than Canada, and so uh, yeah, I mean, it's just seems like it's going to be tough times for the Canadian dollar. So the best case scenario is that that the Fed is wrong, and they don't have to hike as much, or they start. They still hike, but with dovish hikes tone underneath it. And then the Canadian dollar will plop around between, you know, 68 and 78, something like that. Um, the other story is that the Fed continues to remain hawkish. Because remember, they, they have the late 70s, early 80s scare. And the scare there happened twice in that they raised rates aggressively to stop inflation. And then they stopped too early. And then cut rates, and then they had to raise it again. So they don't want that experience. So what will likely happen, the Fed will remain hawkish. Everyone else has already turned less hawkish or, or dovish. And, you know, it, it, again, so Canadian dollar world, you can see, where are we now today? 74, 70, 73-ish, I think, in that range. And, 
my God, like it could easily hit in the 60s, you know, was it low 60s, mid, who knows? But if there's a crisis, it'll get hit hard. This is like as everyone else. Rich, you got any comments on that? Yeah, I just think, I mean, just one thing on the Canada thing. I think, you know, often it's it's like a balance, right? Because I think one, I think one of the counter arguments that people might say was like, well, the Canadian PMI rose back up to 52.6. We're seeing that's, you know, PMIs out of Europe that have improved, you know, China. I don't know if we've talked about that. Oh, sorry, I got that number wrong, but the Canadian, you know, PMI is back above 50. Excuse me. Sorry, I screwed that up. Um, I can tell you the exact number right now. It's the market PMI is 52.4, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, that's after, you know, spending the last four, the fourth quarter below 50, which is in the contractionary zone. So people say, well, Rich, you know, GDP data is backward looking. It was Q4. We're actually seeing decent numbers in employment. We're seeing decent numbers out of PMIs. We're seeing, you know, Europe is doing okay. And the US is powering ahead. Like, you know, why don't you guys have a sort of a more positive sort of forward looking view about Canadian economy, given what we all know, which is GDP is a backward looking indicator. And I think it's just it's that residential piece that I think people just sort of don't get, um, which will and you know, and then that's just a really huge, huge drag, given, you know, the bubble that Canadian housing was in. But also, I think what's important is the contributions from the other sectors are also really lagged. Um, one thing we talked about is employment, and employment is often um, sort of as a lagging indicator. So that's another sort of important wrinkle. And what do you do when you're a business and you're very, very profitable? Well, you want to sort of expand your operations. You want to take on more employment. You want to take uh, employees, excuse me. You want to take perhaps take more risk. Well, there's another um, part of the GDP sort of number. There's like expenditure approach, which is what we normally describe, which is investment, um, consumption, government spending, net exports, but then there's the income approach of GDP, which is sort of where profits, um, whether profits or compensation for employees, etc. And on that scale, you know, gross operating surplus of you know of financial corporations fell by nearly seven percent, um, and profits in general for lots of the companies in in um, in Canada continue to they're under a lot of pressure and if companies are under pressure what do they do they stop hiring and so you know it's just important that that those are the kind of the you know that's why you have to sort of when you look at the pmis they're improving you sort of have to be a little bit skeptical because you know that might just be sort of a short-term blip and if unless you get companies to you know improve their margins improve their sales etc etc they're not going to keep that that you know that that's that hiring going and then sort of that'll that'll sort of feed into the rest of the economy but that's that's the yeah i mean the data data could be noisy keith you got to get rolling here yeah and um thank you um yeah i do have the jump here but maybe one thing guys you guys can continue with this conversation um there has to be good news you know there has to be some bullish news out there you know what i mean right, right now from a macro perspective it doesn't look good right everything is set up to experience something yet that hasn't happened yet so, I mean, the other side of the coin, and the way that we manage our portfolios, like we're never all in one camp or, or the other. You know, we're a bit of a chicken middle here in, in some ways to pay the fat tails. But, you know, we, we continue to go along this path that's it's not awful. Maybe it doesn't go awful and it accelerates, but that's something to, to think about. Uh, so you notice that what I'm doing, guys. The, I have to leave, so I'm leaving it the nice guy. And the, news. <laughs> the gilded recession. Guys, either knock it down. Yeah, Keith, yeah. Keith, yeah, as Keith flies first class to Frankfurt. 
That's right. And his and his kids and his kids are in, are in uh, economy class. Don't forget that, right, Keith? <laughs> kids are at the back of the bus. Yeah, it, it's it's you know it's a funny here's a funny story for you. A few years ago, we were meeting uh, my American friends up in Quebec City. It goes for ski weekend, and uh, we're trying to connect with them. You know, when when are you guys getting there? And he said, "What airline are you taking?" They said, "Well, well, the jet." And we're thinking, oh. WestJet, okay, WestJet in the flight number, and our friend says, no, no, it's 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 the jet, it's the private jet. Like, oh, of course it is. <laughs> they live in a different world than us. You know, meanwhile, like we're in, you know, the, the old car driving up from Halifax. So uh, good anyway, friends to know. Just, yeah, they yeah they're they're lovely. When, they're, when are they lovely. when are they flying us to the next Looney Hour event? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need a few of those. Okay, guys, I got to jump. Uh, lots of love to everyone, and. Uh, I hope I hope Rich explains the diffusion index for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> Safe travels, buddy. Safe travels, Keith. Um, and then there were two. And then there was two. Oh my goodness. How are we gonna do we're we're like a tripod with with only two legs? What are we gonna do, Steve? <laughs> Should we just shit talk the shit tech Keith and talk about how bad he is at uh, organizing Wi-Fi and then microphones and stuff? This or? is probably the third time he's forgot his mic. So at this point. I'm I'm losing my patience, but uh, maybe you get everybody in the YouTube comment section can hopefully let them know that. Um, Rich, I wouldn't mind chatting on. I was gonna, I was hoping to get Keith's a quick opinion on this because I know how much he loves the Eurozone. But you know, the the big story today, of course, was the uh, the uh, e- European Union EU inflation uh, came in hotter than expected, so core inflation accelerated to a record five point. Six percent. That's core inflation. Uh, so consumer prices rose eight and a half percent year over year versus the estimated eight point three. Um, so German two-year yields surged on on the news. Um, so now now the highest uh, since two thousand and eight. So uh, yeah, just the eurozone. I don't know. I mean, it continues to sort of defy gravity, but it kind of looks like a mess. I mean, it isn't a mess and it isn't, right? A little bit of inflation is a good thing. I know people are going to fucking kill me for that. But I think <laughs> if a little bit of inflation is, is is a little bit of is a good thing. It's about whether or not inflation expectations get unanchored. So in Canada, we've discussed this. Inflation expectations have got unanchored. How do I know this? The Bank of Canada conducts a survey and they ask people what they think about inflation and where it's going and over what time period. And we know, because I've shared the chart many, many times, that the chart looks like a hockey stick. It's flat for ages and then goes to the moon and refuses to come off. I think in Europe, um, you know, for, for a long, long time, um, inflation has been very, very low, very, very well behaved. So between 2000 and 2020, um, you know, the average inflation, you know, was below at or below 2%, which is exactly sort of in their mandate. Um, you know, they'll probably take, uh, they'll probably try to take as much credit for that as as they possibly can, who knows. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing headline inflation is off its peak, right? Because, you know, it's largely to do with the energy price spike that we saw. Um, there's different items that you, I don't know if you mentioned this, but super core, which there's core, super core headline. There's sort of all these central banks sort of make up different things to, I guess, push policy that they're trying to go through. And the question is, is this, you know, has it become unanchored? Um, you know, are people, you know, is, is it becoming a problem yet for these economies? I mean, I don't think so yet. Um, Keith's not going to like this, but he's not here to defend, to, to, to disagree, which is you can, a little bit of inflation is good because you can deflate some of these debt burdens away. And we know that there's loads and loads of debt in Greece, in Italy, 
um, less so now in Spain, but you know, France is a highly levered economy. Good. And what you, well, I say good for the debt loads, but maybe less good for the people. Absolutely. So that's, I mean, so that's why, you know, the Germans are starting to squawk. Um, and, 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 and that's why, you know, I think that Christine Lagarde, Lagarde is, is saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to raise rates. And we know that the, so the equivalent of the Fed funds, um, rate expectations, or, you know, the Canada has sort of these uh, futures contract that sort of predict what the future interest rate path, those are starting to rise extreme, like a lot. Um, and so that's, that's the world that we're in. We're in a world where the, the central banks are playing catch up. I mean, the ECB main policy rate is 2.5%. I mean, it, you know, we're going to, I think we're going to break sort of the all time high of 3.75, which was struck in 2001, if you can believe it. Um, and that's exactly what the markets are pricing in. So, I mean, I, I think it's also, I think it's a little bit unfair, sort of, I'm, I'm quite critical and Keith is too of Europe, but you know, this is partly an energy crisis. And I think as that sort of gets solved, I think you'll get a lot of le less pressure. But does it get solved I mean, though? Like in the near term? I mean, I just, you know, I mean, a lot of indications suggest, you know, this war is, is going to continue uh, for at least the next year or two minimum. Yeah. And, you know, we, how, how do we, how, how can we tell, you know, one way is to look at energy prices. So natural gas prices have definitely come off their, their highs from, from last summer, but they're still five, six X what we know in the U S right. Um, and and I, I don't think it gets solved. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that, I mean, I mean, the winter was better than people expected. I mean, I'm in France right now. There's no snow. Uh, the conditions were absolutely horrible. I mean, it's beautiful and sunny, but you know, I was promised a ski in and ski out hotel with Wi-Fi, and I got neither. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's. I don't. I think it's unfair to to stress only the bad stuff because there is some good things going on. Um, you know, we talk, you know, for Europe, current account balance that's structurally positive is very, very important. Um, it, it basically ensures that, you know, negative Nancy's like Keith, who think the euro is going to zero are going to be wrong. If Europe continues to export products um, and generate inflows of cash outside, you know, you can sort of keep the game going. Um, one way to do that is by having cheap energy and, you know, and, and who knows how long that that'll, that'll go on for, but you know, that's the, that's something that's definitely improved. The sentiment in Europe has improved despite high inflation. Um, you know, consumer confidence is low, but it's rebounded for sure. Business confidence, whether it's Germany, France, um, that's sort of improved. Um, we would have expected real GDP growth to be negative in Germany by now. It's held up not well, but it's Okay. You know, you look at the shortages of material in the automotive, automotive, automotive industry and construction, that's all sort of improving. I mean, it's, I think it's just more of what Europe does extremely well, which is just muddle along. Um, it's yeah, interesting, though, right? I mean, the, the Germans, yeah, it. it's just, you know, this, this sort of stagflationary environment. And certainly the Germans are pretty, uh, pretty sensitive to, to, you know, the scars of inflation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, how far do you think the ECB gets? I think I think I think I mean I don't know, man. I think I I'm surprised that they're as aggressive as they have been. Um, you remember they've they've only just come to terms with the fact that it's not transitory. I mean, there's some great people people on YouTube and on Twitter are just fantastic, right? They coll collated all the times that Christine Lagarde was talking about the bump, the bump in inflation, the bump in inflation, and I think they're finally starting to get that it's not going away. Um, if, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, there's in the, in the past people have discussed sort of wage price inflation. 
Um, you know, if you have the way that you can sort of sustain higher inflation for longer is if you have decent nominal wage growth where people can sort of absorb those increases in prices. Well, guess what? I mean, negotiated prices, which is one of the ways that you calculate that for Europe, is starting to creep up higher and higher and do okay. Um, which means that people are, are feeling that they have pricing power and can demand higher wages from their employers. We'll see. I mean, it's just it's a it's a really really tricky. I think it's really tricky business. And I think I can't. I think we can also not discount how important the fact that you know Russia has in has tried to invade Ukraine, and that's putting a lot of pressure on whether it's supply chains, agricultural products, obviously natural gas and oil. Um, and it's sort of unfairs. Maybe it's unfair to judge Europe by the normal under normal circumstances because that means they're basically fighting a war right now. Um, and so I think we need to be a bit more kind, but maybe I'm just getting soft because I'm in the mountains and it's a beautiful sunny day. Yeah. I mean, it's just not like this to me. I mean, here's your thoughts, but I mean, does not, it feels like it's one of the most complicated markets to try to like figure out. Like, it's just, I, I just, you know, you follow so many smart people online and, and, um, everybody seems to think they've got the answer, but the, the, the I've never seen so much disagreement on the outcome here and it's you're getting all these different data points and yeah, I think my biggest thing is just like volatility. I mean, you're really going to continue to get a whipsawed from all these data points getting dropped every couple of weeks. It's also about expectations, right? Cause I think when, when natural gas prices were as high as they were, um, you know, I think at one point they were like 20 times what you'd get, you'd, Fine. So natural gas prices, um, it depends on how you calculate them and what market you're looking at. Um, but natural gas prices, I think over the summer, are something like 20 times what they were in the US. I think that was the absolute peak peak. And of course, in that scenario, your expectations for the collapse, literally the collapse of the, your, the European industrial base, that's front of mind. That's like a realistic outcome. But now in this, you're in a situation where it's only I'm looking at the chart right now. We're at you know five x what they what. So the way you calculate it is there's ICE, there's Europe Trading Hub, there's Tidal Transfer Facility out of Netherlands. These are different types of pricing um, and indices um, and markets for natural gas. And in the U.S., it's Henry Hub. And right now, it's Europe is five times more expensive for natural gas, which is one of the key inputs for energy for heating. Um, and for the industrial base in Europe. And so I think it's about expectations, which is at one point, literally, they thought, you know, there was the end collapse of the industrial base in Europe to now going, well, maybe they can survive. And I think that that's the first leg that we were sort of seeing. So when you look at the German ZEW or the PMIs or um, the expectations um, on, you know, um, on what's going on with consumer confidence, et cetera, I think we're only starting to see the recalibration from it's the end of the world to maybe we can get through this. And so that's, that's the part I think it's, and we need to sort of see the next leg of data and, and sort of how can companies and, and industries absorb this kind of outsized increase in energy prices. Uh, maybe that's a sort of a cop-out as far as an answer is concerned, but I, th I still think we need to see what sort of the next leg, the summer and what, what goes on. Well, remember there's no business case for uh, exporting <laughs> yeah. our Canadian natural gas oh to Europe. God. Don't get me started uh, on that. I don't know if you've a nice little victory for you here. We were chatting about it in the, uh, in the group chat, but uh, so the Vanguard CEO uh, came out and recently abandoned his uh, ESG investing Alliance uh, saying, quote, he's not in the game of politics. 
Yeah, I mean, this is inevitable. I think I think uh, it's probably because they're just not making any money. I mean, that's what it was always about. That's what it is about. Um, financial innovation, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, should always be treated. But the, the, you know, like Vanguard and... Vanguard is not for profit. Wait, what? <laughs> they're not. Vanguard is a for-profit company for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vanguard uh... is a massive, massive uh, company, but um, it's a it's an ETF provider. Unless uh, Vanguard Group is American registered investment, yeah, um, as a global asset manager, and it's it's one of the largest. I think don't right they all right kick it, they they kick it all back though. No, no, no. But they take their spread. Don't 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 you don't you forget it. They take okay. their pound of flesh. They take their spread and they take their pound of flesh. And it's an extremely um, extremely profitable company. If I'm not mistaken, they're the point of the pioneers of the ETF um, exchange traded funds. Um, and the gentleman who I think is, star- um, I think his name is John something. I can't John remember. Now, but he, yeah. So he, he's a, you know, he's a visionary to be honest with you. I um, mean, he's something, somebody that's worth le- looking up and learning about, but yeah, I mean, stepping back just a second, I mean, the reality is, is that ESG was always a scam. Um, and, and, but more importantly, as companies realize that they cannot do it profitably, I think it'll just become less and less popular, but I, w- I let's not, let's not um, harp on it too much. I wanted to talk about China if we can just says, quickly. Bloomberg says Vanguard is essentially, essentially a nonprofit. So yeah, but so is the CIA. Uh, so there will be, it as you will. I'm going to get me. You're going to get me in Someone's trouble. Someone's making money. Someone's Someone making money. is making money. Uh, but if I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry. Um, but so they I mean, definitely I could be wrong spread. anyway. Someone will correct us. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about China quickly because I mean, China is the largest economy on a purchasing power parity basis. Um, and you know, you know, you can, you can, you can, other can, you can complain all you want, but. Um, the data out of China has been very strong as sort of we should have expected as the market priced in a couple of months ago, right? Remember, we saw sort of the CSI 300, the Shanghai index, Hang Seng, and a bunch of these um, indices sort of snap back um, on the news that the economy was going to um, reopen. And the purchasing managers index, my favorite, the diffusion index, shot up to um, 52.6, which is okay. High, highest in 11 years. Yeah, exactly. So you beat me to it. So, so I mean, it's you have to sort of just take that with a grain of salt, right? They went from like an absolute insane lockdown. None of these, not like a Mickey Mouse lockdown like in Canada, but like a proper crazy draconian lockdown. I mean, that's not called proper, but yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> you know what I mean? though but like and and so they're opening up and that's an important lever as far as global growth global growth expectations its impact on commodities consumers i mean you know luxury goods sales are actually have done really really well over this past earnings season um i mean i can only imagine it's going to trickle into travel etc etc so i think it's it's just really really important that people recognize that that's happening um well they're basically like a full year behind right so it's kind of like what happened to us post lockdowns, like as people sort of came out of that, it's like, well, you had this huge boom in travel and people going out to restaurants and beginning to socialize again. So obviously services, uh, service inflation obviously ripped higher. Yeah. I mean, as goods rolled over. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the problem is, is like, you have to just be careful, right? Uh, with these diffusion ind- indexes. I mean, I could just hear Keith laughing at us right now. But it's also it's not just the the manufacturing um, component. It was the non-manufacturing is also way up, which is services, um, and that's at fifty six point three. So that's a very very good number. Remember, uh, fifty above and below fifty is expansion and contraction. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other point is that you're right about them being a year behind, right? You know, Keith often talks about risks being synchronized, and I would agree with that. But I think what we're seeing right now is the macro is unsynchronized. Is that a word? <laughs> um, where you have sort of um, sort of the U.S sort of late stages, later cycle, you have the Europe sort of quasi in the middle due to war and other factors. And then you have China sort of right at the beginning, really, of this new sort of expansionary or mid-cycle phase. Um, and remember- I mean, it continues to muddle the whole picture. That's the reality. It's like you were kind of every, I don't know, like I said, it just, to me, it seems like there's just so many data points and the markets are just moving all over the place. Like the only thing I think people should have confidence in is volatility. Yeah. Definitely. And the other thing that's really important is we're seeing the, the Fed tighten or continue to tighten, even though let's say most of it's already done. Um, we're seeing the ECB. We just talked about that. They're going to raise rates. The BOC, the People's Bank of China, so the PBOC, is doing the opposite. They're providing liquidity. I mean, they haven't cut you know the reserve requirement ratio or central bank rates in a while, but they have done. They're the only central bank in Asia of any consequence that's done so. And they will, they're going to continue to provide liquidity. Um, and we, we know that M2, so money supply is, is the highest it's been in five years. Lending um, growth year on year has stopped falling, is now going up again. So there's, as you, you know, as you mentioned, there's like, there's conflicting sort of data points. The other thing about Europe is in many ways, of course, maybe culturally it's tied to the U.S. Um, from a military and political standpoint, it's much more closely aligned with the West. But make no mistake, the export the machinations of the export market in China and all that are di directly affect what's going on in Europe. Remember, Europe is an export eco um, economy, and that's so that's that's re it's really really closely tied to the, what's going on in China, and so that, that that will also sort of mess up any questions of whether or not there's going to be recession in Europe or whether or not inflation can go down. Or this, is it this is this to me feels like this could be one of the worst setups possible, which is you just get this like very stagnant economy where just like it's kind of in recession kind of not but then then you still have like persistently higher inflation stagflation right it's just that this to me seems like a really horrible outcome as well so it's actually funny you should say that because i think had you asked me that like a year ago i would have out just disagreed with you right off the bat and i think i'm probably coming around to that view actually because we know that growth in Europe is not great, but we just growth didn't we in just Canada's dis flat, right? And the U.S. US slowing is its own right, slowing. And but we know inflation is really strong, and in my view, going to stay there. And so, yeah, maybe I, I I think I've come around to your point because I know that you've you raised this you know a long time ago, and I think I I, I disagreed, and maybe uh, maybe it's time for me to eat some crow here and sort of change. Uh, my, I mean, my I raised you. it though, like I raised it very early on um and then i i genuinely felt that i'm sure a lot of people did when when you know the boc and the fed and everybody raised rates by 400 beeps in in a year less than a year that i just figured something would break at that point and you have this sort of deflationary wave like we're used to right like fed central banks raise rate something goes boom in the night you get this sort of you know sort of financial event you get a little bit of deflation and then you're cutting rates and sort of re-stimulating. But yeah, just it, for whatever reason, hasn't happened yet. And to Keith's point, I know he still views this, the, the hard landing is, is certainly a fairly probable event. Um, but yeah, it just, it, it hasn't happened. And so right now we're just kind of muddling along. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's, and it, it, I think it's just that that's what's going to keep going on. I mean, we know that. I mean, I think China's trying to target six percent for GDP growth. I mean, that number is probably bogus, um, but they're going to have slower growth. U.S. is probably going to have slower growth. I remember the the, the PMIs are the manufacturing PMIs in the forty sevens. Um, Europe again, expectations might have improved from from horrible to slightly, you know, not dead. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a really really interesting. I don't know what happens to bond yields in that scenario. Um, the other thing, I mean, we talk about equities and earnings. We haven't even discussed that, which is the the margin story and is rolling. I mean, that's going that's getting worse in the U.S. So we talk about equity markets that are dealing with, you know, maybe low valuations, but worsening earnings expectations, falling um, profit margins, weaker sales. Um, so like, it's just that, yeah, it's just volatility. I think it's, it's just a situation where I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I have, I know a couple of things here and there on the margin perhaps, but it's just well, a really, always, really tricky situation. I always bring it back to like, just even what we're seeing in the housing market here, right? Which is like, Okay, rates are way up. Uh, you know, sales are obviously weak, but like you've got this weird situation where like new listings are somehow coming in at 20 year lows. Like I thought there was going to be this sort of wave of distressed people. I mean, that's certainly what the market was telling everybody, right? Like all these people that are on their variable rate mortgages, they're gonna be forced to sell, these private lenders, people that were gonna have to renew. And it just seems like we don't have the answer yet. I like we know that stress is obviously building, but just it hasn't materialized into inventory. And so you haven't had a market that's really cleared. You know, I went through you know a decent sized correction in twelve months, but now, I mean, anecdotally, it's it's firming up. I mean, it's hard to have a continued price sell off when you have no inventory on the market. And so we're actually seeing, I would argue today, and I've said this multiple times, is that people that are buying houses today right now are paying more than they would have paid three, four, five, six months ago. Crazy. You're paying, yeah. You're paying more today. It's just, it is what it is. You were able to negotiate good deals or better deals, I should say four, five months ago. Um, when there was a bit more inventory, sellers felt more motivated or desperate or scared. And uh, right now that's so, but it's weird. You know, I was looking at a report um, from the Ontario mortgage lender, basically it's a, it's a, it's the sort of governance around, uh, licensed mortgage brokers in Ontario. And, uh, last year, uh, one in 10, one of 10 brokered loans was private. That's is crazy. That, is, that a, is that a lot? Sorry. I have yeah, to contextualize that for me. One in, so think about this, any borrower, any borrower out there, goes to a mortgage broker and says, I need a, a mortgage loan to buy the, a new home. One in 10 of them essentially were going private, private financing, which is extremely expensive. And it's typically one to max two-year loans. So anyone that would have taken out a private, let's say at the beginning of last year, you might've got a first private loan at 6%. You're probably coming up for renewal now at you know 10%. And because those are non-regulated lenders is they can dictate the terms, right? They can say, well, Hey, listen, your, your house values dropped by 10, 15%. So you got to put in more equity before I even consider renewing you. And so all of a sudden you've got this sort of margin, margin call. Can I, okay. So that, that actually brings, that reminds me of a question I've been meaning to ask you, which is, 
So why do you, can you help me understand why Canadian housing stocks, and I'll get into them in a couple, have done so well over the last, let's say, four or five months? Um, and I'll just remind everybody. So, you know, when I look at equity markets and bond markets, we look at sort of sentiment and technicals, and there's a wide ranging num- different types of sentiment and technicals. You know, there's the RSI relative strength index, there's the breadth, there's the volume measures, there's investor sentiment measures, um, there's put call ratios, there's volatility index, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the ones I really like to look at are sort of what I call bellwethers. And it's quite an ephemeral way of looking at the markets, but it's something I really like to look at. So for tech, you might look at Google and, um, you know, Meta and Spotify and 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 the micro cap index or PayPal, whatever. And, and um, you know, for, for energy, you might look at Exxon or Shell or whatever. I mean, and in Canada, I look at sort of equitable group. We've talked about these before. Home Capital Group, Go Easy, Sleep Country. Um, Altus and Altrium, and but and so I just can you help me? You know, as a, as a top down guy, Steve, can you help me figure out why these housing stocks continue to sort of do really well, um, even though we know that there's less liquidity, we know that these house prices are under pressure. I mean, do you have do you have an idea why they're doing so well? I, I mean, to be honest, to be blunt, not really. I just think maybe it's maybe it's markets, you know, front running and getting optimistic and okay. saying, okay, maybe the, these were oversold and uh, it's not going to be as bad as we thought. Like that, that to me is the only maybe rational conclusion because I just think okay. like I think the housing market can more in a lot of ways can move on its own. Like you know, the S and P can be going up, but housing can be kind of muddling along. Yeah. So. Um, I just think housing takes a lot. It's it's like a it's like a it's like a cruise ship. Like it just doesn't really turn on a, on a dime. Like you know, like equity markets can bounce around a couple percent on a day, right? So housing is just very slow moving. And you know, you look at people list a house at a high price for four months before they reduce, and then they reduce it by a tiny bit, and then they reduce again, and they take it off the market. They try a new realtor. And so it takes a long time to sort of figure out price discovery. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, right now, I think it's hard, again, to get price discovery. I think prices arguably for sure would be lower today. They should be lower today, given that mortgage rates are still in the fives. But again, when you have no inventory, Sellers have no competition. They they kind of set the price, and and it is unfair for me to use just six stocks to sort of triangulate what's going on in the housing market. But I just I couldn't resist like asking you the question. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, was, I don't know. It's hard. I don't know. For me, it's like, well, would you want to own those in, in the near term, medium? No, term? I mean that's that's the thing. I think I'm I'm still quite skeptical about what's going on there. But I just yeah, yeah you've got these levered households that are you know tied into the housing market with yeah. a bank of Canada that's probably gonna have to hold rates higher than everyone initially yeah. anticipated. There's no cuts being priced in, by the way. Something Keith mentioned, um, which is something I, I want to jump in there, but there's there's all the cuts that have been sort of were priced in six months ago. They're basically all gone. Um, you know, it's actually quite amazing how 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 things have changed over the last six months. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. It's going to be interesting, but I think uh, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. I think you and I held uh, held our own here without the old man. <laughs> that was yeah, uh, we did okay. Yeah, we haven't we haven't uh, knocked on wood. We haven't missed an episode. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. We've all, we've all been traveling and typically bringing our mics. So, um, thanks for bearing with us today, um, despite Keith's audio issues and Wi-Fi <laughs> issues and 
and travel um, issues. <laughs> we're, we're doing our we're doing our best here. It's a it's a low budget production, but we're uh, we're working with what we got. So as always, we appreciate your support. Uh, if you you know got any value, appreciate the show. Want to leave your support? Leave us a five star review on Apple or Spotify, and uh, we'll see you next week.